0: Good morning, Evergreen. If you'll turn with me, now we're going to be in Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13, and I'm going to read a little bit longer of a text. Well, not quite as many words as I read last week, but we're going to move a little bit farther into our text in Mark chapter 13. We're going to start in verse 14. And at that point, I just want to let you know that This is Jesus' answer to a very specific question. Verse 4 says, When will these things happen? And what what are the signs that indicate when these things are to come? He's He's speaking specifically. There we go. You just have to separate out those words. He's speaking specifically about what Jesus had said. That the temple stones are going to be torn out. That there will not be a single stone standing on the temple mount. And that this is God's word that he's giving to them his will. And like Robert said, be listening. See if you can tell where Jesus quotes. Because he actually quotes Daniel chapter 12, what Robert just said, twice. Now I'll go ahead and tell you, he quotes verse 1 and he quotes verse 11. So that that can be a fun little task for you to be looking out for.
1: I'm going to
0: read starting at verse 14, and I'm going to read until verse 31. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down. Nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God had created. Until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days. No human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect. Whom he chose. He shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you. Look here is the Christ. Or look there he is. Do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers In the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather in his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and it puts out its leaf, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things take place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This is the reading of God's holy and inspired word. In case you're wondering if I listen to you or if I might even modify my pace of my sermons through the book of Mark, if you just ask, I actually talked with someone this week who gave me some wisdom that they would benefit if I slowed down a little bit at this point. So this is just more of a general notice that you can do that if there's a topic that you think that it might be beneficial to slow down at a specific point. And I'm really thankful that I talked to this person. And if you don't like spending this much time in eschatology, uh, I won't tell you who uh, someone in the Morgan family is so that you won't go after them. But I think we, it's a really good idea that we slow down. If for anything, for the very reason, to take the full weight of that last sentence that we read, or really rather, in verse 30. To take this seriously, where Jesus says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Do you realize there's a lot of weight to that statement? Do you feel it? Because if you were an atheist, this would be a good place to go. Because Jesus is talking to this generation, the generation he's speaking to, and saying that these things will take place. And that this is going to be the thing that causes him to say, he wants his disciples to be able to say in verse 23, that they're on their guard and that they'll be able to say it. Jesus told us all these things beforehand. That after it occurs, and after it takes place, that they'll be able to say, Wow, Jesus' word was true. He was a prophet which spoke about the future. Who stands up to the criteria of Deuteronomy 18, which says that if any prophet predicts something that's going to happen in the future, and it does not come to pass... That that prophet was to be stoned because he obviously does not speak for God. And I want to affirm to you that Jesus lives up to that promise. He lives up to that standard in Deuteronomy 18. And that's one of the things I want to show you. I'm going to show you not over one week, but I'm actually going to show you over two. So I'm not slowing down two too much, so you don't have to be too afraid. You see... A lot of times when we think about end times, what's going to happen in the end, unfortunately, the way we talk about it isn't too helpful. If you've been wondering if I was going to define these terms, mill post-mill, pre-mill, here I'm going to do it. That There are these times which there's this one text in the Bible that talks about a thousand-year reign of Christ. It's Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. And the whole discussion about the end times is framed around that one half, first half of a chapter. And saying that Christ and that his reign and rule will start either right after or in the midst of the seven-year tribulation period, that he's going to start and establish a rule on earth that is going to happen either pre the millennium, post that millennium, or that millennium is somehow a figurative number. But the point here is, really, we're not going to get into all those distinctions, because that's not really a helpful category. It's not the category that Jesus talked about when he referred to what's going to happen in the future. The way that he talked about it was a way in which is we're thinking about now, maybe a better framing as we're reading through Mark 13, is this distinction between futurist positions and preterist positions. Futurist positions, basically, I said this last week that once we get to 14, the difference that Christians have is not the whole blanket approach, what Jesus said, that the whole scope of this sermon is very clear. But what details pertain to to the disciples in that generation, and what details pertain to the future, the second coming of Christ. That's the distinction about end time that matters for this discussion. People who are called futurists would posit, really starting all the way back in verse 5, saying all of this happened, not yet, but in the future at some point when Christ returns. All of it. And that this generation he speaks to, or of rather, in verse 30, is a future generation. But there's some problems with that because he's talking about this generation that he's speaking to. Then there's people that would say that they're more of a preterist. That they see all these things have come to pass. That would be a full preterist. Or part of it has come to pass. And there we get to see where, really, for second, Thessalonians does not allow us to say that all of it has come to pass. At least if you're saying that Christ has already returned, that the resurrection has happened. That Paul actually labels that position of saying all of this has happened in the sense of the second coming. That Jesus has already been raised from the dead and has brought the resurrection of our bodies that that position is actually heresy. So we don't want to go in that direction either. When we're looking at this, I think there's something that we should be able to say here. We should be able to, in some sense, affirm that Jesus has told us, or told his apostles, the disciples, all these things beforehand. And I'm going to leave a third category that will to talk about, to make things even more complicated. But let's look at this. Let's start looking at what he's actually doing. He's looking at this first time in verse 14. We see for the first time he's answering the when question. The disciples, and part of the problem in this, is that the disciples asked, when is the temple going to be destroyed? And in their minds, they had linked that up with the second coming of Christ. And that's why we see these details intermixed with each other. And Jesus started off in the first 13 verses saying what the signs are not. The signs are not tribulation. The signs are not wars. The signs is not famine. The signs is not nations raging against nations. And he actually brought us to the end in verse 13 saying that the one who endures to the end will be saved. He marks this whole period between Jesus' first coming all the way to the end to be a period that's marked by tribulation, by suffering, by distress. But he, for the first time, finally answers their when question that they posited in verse 4 when he says, But when you see the abomination of desolation staring where he ought not to be, Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. This is really important. If you want to flip over with me, keep your finger in Mark. Flip over to Luke chapter 21, starting in verse 20. The same sermon is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Luke 21, starting at verse 20 actually details something extremely helpful in trying to clarify this. Because Mark gives the the admonition, or really the charge, that if you believe Jesus' words, when you see this abomination of desolation, we'll explain that, that if you see this, you are to, if you're in Judea, if you live in that historical location, that land, you're supposed to flee. Luke makes this historical reference very, very clear. Verse 20 But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are in the country enter it, for these are the days of vengeance to fulfill that which is written. For there will be great distress upon the earth, and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword, and by the edge of or fall by the edge of the sword, and be led captive among the nations. ...among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. You see, there's this moment in history in which what Jesus said would happen, happened. Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple. And we know in history... When his prediction came true. In 70 A.D., Titus was sent by the emperor uh, Valen—I think it's Valentinius—starts with a V. I don't know why it's slipping my mind. Maybe Steve might know it though. That uh, that he had sent he sent Titus one of his uh, one of his ...generals to go crush a rebellion that had started in 68 A.D. So Jesus, by the way, if you want to know why we have A.D., 0 A.D. is supposed to mark somewhere around when Jesus is born. Jesus being crucified somewhere around 33 A.D. Within this first generation, the generation that he saw and spoke to, many disciples would have had that on their minds, that Jesus had given them a very specific command, that when they saw whatever this abomination of desolation was, that they were to flee. And D.A. Carson notes something that Eusebius wrote in the late 300s, that there were people living in Jerusalem, that when there was a revolt, when there was a rebellion, in which the zealots, a uh, political class in Jerusalem, they took over Jerusalem. They installed their own fo- foe priest, high priest, and his name was Fanny, so we can make fun of him. Fanny was established as the high priest. He did not know what he was doing. Then Titus came, surrounded the city, starting in 68 AD, and you know what Christians did? Christians fleed the city. Eusebius notes that the people of the church in Jerusalem were commanded by an oracle given by revelation. I wonder what he's talking about here. Before the war, to those that were in the city, that they who are worthy were to depart from Jerusalem. And what we see happening, really it's between 67 and 68 AD, was Christians fleeing from Jerusalem on account of what they had seen. In understanding this, we see this first point, and something I really want to convince you of is that we can see how the destruction of Jerusalem, in part, and I'm saying in part here, fulfills the prediction of Jesus that he spoke to, and he let the reader understand, either the reader of Daniel or the reader of this book, we don't know exactly which one he's talking to, that if you're reading this, and you're living in Jerusalem, and you see this thing happening, whatever abomination of desolation, that Jesus' words are about to come true, answering the when question. Well, in what sense? Where is he getting this? What is this abomination of desolation? Well, we always interpret Scripture with Scripture. Jesus here is making clear something that Daniel couldn't get his mind around. Daniel said at the end of Daniel chapter 12 that he did not understand the words that were given to him. And you know what Jesus is doing in this text? He's making it clear. Jesus is giving us an interpretation of the Old Testament. And he quotes here the abomination of desolation, Daniel chapter 12, verse 11. So that's your homework. That, it's already fulfilled, so now you don't have any more homework. We try to keep homework limited to this space. We don't take it home. But what he's doing here is he's making this reference to abomination of desolation. Speaking specifically of the destruction of the temple. Now, abomination is just a certain thing that you've done, a sinful thing that has caused it to be unclean. Desolation referring to destruction. Now, we can't pinpoint with really, uh, at least I can in all the reading I've done, I can't pinpoint one specific thing that was the abomination that occurred in the temple. I don't know if it was that fanny guy. I don't know if it was Titus. I don't know if it was the fact that once he got into the temple, Titus, that he had set up an emperor, or rather an image of the emperor. I don't know if it was something about Caligula and what he was trying to connive or do. It could have been a whole complex of different things. But the main point that we need to see here is we don't want to rob Jesus. Of making a prediction that came true. To rob Jesus of that. And posit this is 100% in the future. Is to rob something of Jesus that makes a claim that he is who he said he is. And that he knows the future. And that he speaks very, very clearly. But before we go too far. I think it's important to know that that phrase, the abomination of desolation, that that's not the only time it occurs in the book of Daniel. And I think in your outline, I included some of these things. That it occurs in Daniel chapter 8, when it talks about the burnt offering being taken away, the sanctuary being overthrown because of this transgression. That the truth was thrown to the ground. That it was rendered, it was a transgression that made it desolate, speaking about the temple. It also occurs in Daniel chapter 9, verse 26 through 70, I said 77 in my notes, 26 to 27. That he talks about the fact that this anointed one would be cut off. That the sanctuary, that the end would come like a flood and at the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed in that, verse 27, on the wing of the temple. Abominations shall come who make desolate. The phrase occurs again in Daniel chapter 11, verse 31, where it says that they shall set up an abomination that makes desolate. What's the point? The point is... Is that in Daniel, that phrase, the abomination of desolation, does not refer to just one instance. This is the sense, and what I would like to show you is how the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, specifically the temple, does not fit, like it fills it, I guess to clarify the blanks. The first one is that it fills Christ's. Prophecy But the temple destruction does not Full fill it That the temple destruction Fills it But now we're going to look at how The temple destruction does not Full fill it And the first thing to do in looking at this Is to realize that the temple Had not just been destroyed One time Jeremiah 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 chapter 7 has a prophecy in which Jeremiah tells them that they're going to have a destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, and that it's going to lead to the land's desolation. Jeremiah chapter 5, 6, and 7. That we're seeing that at the end of 2 Chronicles, that as a result of the people's transgressions, as a result of the people of God rejecting their God, that their land will be made desolate, that the temple will be taken away from them, that the temple cannot serve as a safe house for robbers, and that God would crush the temple and the robbers who were in it. Not only that, but Daniel's words, specifically at least, bare minimum in Daniel chapter 11, had already been fulfilled in a different historical moment. Titus was not the first Roman or foreigner to come in and set up a foreign deity altar within the temple of Jerusalem. In 168 BC, he has a really fun name, Antiochus IV of Epiphanes. This guy, who was a Greek, he was a Roman general who crushed a rebellion... Who came into the city, killed virtually, uh, killed a large swath of the people, went into the temple and hated the Jews so much, he put a pig on the altar and slit its throat, put blood on it to desecrate the temple in Jerusalem. And he destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. You see what Jesus is doing here, and some of these details clue this in, is that he's looking forward to this moment and answering the disciples' question about when the temple will be destroyed. But the temple being destroyed does not bring about, in the next moment, the end. Jesus is setting up this this sense in which... he's showing the link between these two things, the temple being destroyed and his second coming. But he's showing that there's not this immediate thing, that these two things are separated out from one another. And he does this by after giving them the practical instruction that if they find themselves into Jerusalem, run away. Don't look back. He says in verse 19, for in those days there will be such tribulation... As has not been since the beginning of creation, that God had created until now and never will be. See, we can see how the temple fills the prophecy, making Jesus' words true, but it doesn't quite fulfill it. It's kind of a hard thing to say that this event in history in 70 AD, or in 168 for that matter, where the temple was destroyed that this was the moment in which God's judgment, that this was the worst thing to ever happen since the beginning of creation that God had created until now or never will be. The Jews have faced the Holocaust as the people, the Crusades. There's been Muslim occupation. There's been the Spanish Inquisition. There have been lots of bad things that have happened to the city of Jerusalem. However, I, I will confess, I do not know 100% when it comes to the details of this text, because it could be, it could be that this was the worst moment for the people, the Jews, especially when you look at something like Josephus's recording of it. Josephus was a Jewish historian who said this about the moment of the temple's destruction, Said that the number at this, what, who Titus carried away in this war, was 97,000 captives. Maybe not that, that much, but if you realize that the fact that he said he recorded that the number that perished during the whole siege was 1.1 1. 1 million people. And the Roman generals did it the same way they do a lot of their wars, which they don't want to waste manpower. They do what Luke recorded. They encircled the city. They cut off supplies, and for two years, no food and no water was heading into that city. It was a terrible, terrible thing that took place. And it was also a terrible, terrible thing that the temple was destroyed. That There were so many people here because Titus planned it out that when the Jews were coming to celebrate Passover, that was the moment when Titus came. That was the moment when he he surrounded the city. I cannot say with definitive 100% 2020 vision that this is the worst thing that has ever happened to the Jewish people, but it's pretty far up there. 1.1 1.1 million people starving to death extremely going through extreme situation but you know what i'm not convinced of i'm not convinced that this is fulfilled in the sense of what happens in verse 22 because afterwards he brings up something that marks the end of the age and he already said marked the whole span of his first coming to his second coming that there would be false christ false prophets that would arise, that would perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. There's this sense in which what Jesus does is after he's he'd already, from verses 5 to 13 in Mark, chapter 13, how he had brought us through the whole end up to the end of the age. And now he's brought us up again to the end of the age, saying that, yes, there will be, that there's going to be signs and wonders, that there's going to be false Christs and false prophets, which, guess what, have existed long after that temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. And I'm not sure if I've seen someone who's come and was performed miracle workings the way that Second Thessalonians chapter 2 portrays for us and depicts for us with this man of lawlessness. So what is going on here? Jesus is predicting the end of the temple. But you know what's true of all disasters? When God predicts judgment on a particular nation or a particular people, it's always just a taste, a foretaste of judgment day to come. It's always a foretaste of the judgment day to come. We know that this final tribulation has not completely fulfilled Jesus' prophecy because his second coming has not happened yet. Matthew 24, 26 talks about the fact that after this great tribulation, Matthew 24, 26 through 28, That just as lightning comes through the sky sky and shines east from west, west, so shall the coming of the the Son of Man be. Jesus, when he comes, it will be obvious, not a secret return. And to say that all of this was fulfilled in this one moment, you would have to postulate or assume that Jesus came back and had his second coming, but it happened as a some sort of secret second coming. Just for Jerusalem. When Matthew shows that when Jesus comes again at the end of the age, at the end of the world, that it's going to be obvious to all. It won't be secret in any sense. And when Jesus comes, Revelation chapter 19 says, he will personally mediate judgment on the whole world. Not only that, but we see also that the final day of tribulation, the judgment day to come, will also coincide with that judgment, the resurrection of the dead. And that has also not happened. I know I've thrown a ton of information at you guys. Let me just go ahead and say that I kind of planned on leading the application to the end and that's on purpose because there's just so much information to get through and try and I really do think it's important that we get hold of this information to see how Jesus kept his word the temple being destroyed was a fulfillment of Jesus' words but it wasn't a full fulfillment that it resulted in the destruction of Jesus uh, the destruction of Jesus, of a temple that Jesus' prophethood has been affirmed, and yet Jesus has not come back. And it comes down to that question that the disciples asked and the, the disciples' fatal question, which linked the destruction of the temple with the end of the world. That's the root of it. And we're really going to look at that more next week of more of those things which definitely have not come to pass yet. But I want to be practical. I really do. And it's at this point in which you're saying, how on earth does this matter? How does this matter for me to live my life? And we need to know that Jesus Christ does not give any abstract theologies to just puff up your knowledge. Jesus does not, and the Bible does not contain truths which are only meant to be filling up your head to make you know more than other people. All true theology should lead to worship, and all true theology... Should, live, should lead to practical living. In what sense does it do this? Well, I would say in, as a big overarching theme, it helps us to be prepared for the future. Now, I know some of you probably don't save for the future. And I say this because I looked up just actually just this morning to see what the, mo- the most recent statistic was of, uh, a survey of a 1,000 Americans and seeing that 30, almost 33% do not have $100 in their savings account. That mo- a third of Americans are not saving for the future in any sense. Now granted, I'll, I'll go ahead and tell you that, that uh, statistic, I don't exactly trust that precise number. There's a lot of different moving parts there. A lot, half of the people interviewed were under the age of 35. That's a big one. But the point being is that if I cannot convince you, or if you're not convinced that you should save for your future monetarily, I don't have a chance of trying to convince you of that how preparing for the end of the world matters for you. If you won't prepare for your own personal end, of course you're not going to prepare ...for the end of the world... ...that you might even come to doubt... ...is even going to come to pass... ...for how long has it been... ...since Jesus made this prophecy? The other way it does... ...is what we see in this... ...is God's sovereignty over history... ...never gives us a reason... ...never gives God's people a reason... ...to not prepare for the future... Did you see what Jesus told his disciples? He told his disciples. He told them that the temple was going to be destroyed. And he told them in verse 18 specifically, pray that it may not happen in winter. The future is certain. But there's no reason that it should negate our prayer life. Praying for certain things to happen in the future. You know, the fact that God is sovereign over all events gives us the reason that we pray to God. Because we know God is sovereign over history. We see that he works everything out to his design. And that if we are a follower of Christ, we know that he listens to the prayers of his people and he answers their prayers. We see that saving for the future Understanding that this is the type of future that there's parts in which have been fulfilled and parts in which remain future for us helps us also just to live in this world. Notice at no point in this does Jesus say that he's going to, for his people, and I'm trying to be careful here, that he's going to rapture them away and out to where they don't have to go through tribulation. You know what Jesus actually promises for the future of Christians? He promises us tribulation. He promises us that were there, tribulation. Trials, pain, sorrow. That Christians will go through a history that's marked by war and rumors of wars. Where there'll be anxiety. Where there'll be pain. Here we have a a microscope uh, Really, thank you, microcosm. Cosm. There we go. Need an English major. Always should sit in the front of the rows so I can always be helped out. But what we see here is this microcosm of how God answers the problem of evil. Have you ever wondered how can God be sovereign? How can God be in control? And yet so many evil things are happening in this world. How can it be in control and let so many bad things happen? The answer to that question ultimately is that it's not going to last forever. That there is going to be a day in which God brings every evil deed, every wicked deed into judgment. That the problem of evil, for now, is confusing. But it will be brought to conclusion. The problem of evil will not be a problem forever. It will be done away with. But we are not to expect it to be dealt away with until Jesus returns and does away with it himself. And brings every deed into judgment. We should be helped here not just only that we maybe anticipate our future that God will not let us go through tribulation but it also helps us to limit our expectations for the future. That we should not posit from this some golden age in the future in which the world will be Christianized to such an extent where suffering, pain, wars, tribulation, pestilence, disease will not mark this world. Do you see that? Even after the destruction of the temple, Jesus tells them that there will still be false Christ. There will still be false prophets. Copying the very language of the very first 13 word, uh, verses that said that all these things will go to the end of the age. And such expectations help us to know what our true goal is as Christians. It's not to escape suffering. Dear Christian 1st 2nd Timothy chapter 3 says all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted full stop that while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse de- deceiving and being deceived but as for you continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it how from childhood you've been acquainted with the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. What's our task in this evil age? We already said it in verse 10. Knowing that in the midst of this evil age, what we must do first in the midst of it is that the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations, that we are to show the world How the Bible, how the sacred scriptures make us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. That's our goal. That's our message. That's our mission. Our method is the proclamation of the gospel. And to hope in him as we go through suffering in this life. Knowing that all judgments that happen in this world, whether whether the death of a loved one or if it's the flood that happened in Noah's day or the stars falling from heaven and burning and destroying a city like Sodom and Gomorrah or even here, Jerusalem's terrible fate, all these disasters All these destructions are supposed to point us that things are not the way they're supposed to be. That this world is marked by pain and destruction, but there's one day coming in which it won't be. But that's only true for those who are in Christ. If you're outside of Christ, if you don't listen to Jesus' words when he tells you to flee, you will endure not The destruction of Jerusalem, that has already come and gone. You'll have a fate worse than death because you have not taken God's heed and God's plea to flee from the wrath to come. All these things are just a foretaste of the destruction that awaits those who reject Christ. Please heed God's warnings. Heed them and believe in Jesus Christ and seek salvation only in him. Let him be the ark of your salvation, which you use to escape the flood of God's wrath. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. May we once again not count the fulfilling of your promises as slowness, as some count slowness. Let us take this opportunity that you have not sent your Son to judge the world, to be a sign of God's patience towards us, not wishing any to perish, but that the world, through the preaching of the gospel, would turn and trust in Christ. And may we, as we continue to study this text, May we be convinced that the day of the Lord will come suddenly like a thief in the night. And that he will deal away with all pain, all suffering. But it will happen in a moment. It won't happen until Jesus comes back. And Lord, since Jesus has told us things beforehand, let us not be taken off guard, but let us prepare And Lord, may we prepare the best way, which is to place our trust in Christ and to be found in him. Lord, it's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen.